Good morning and welcome to visitors that are here with us this morning and a special blessing, I guess, to the dads. We're going to honor dads in a roundabout way later on this morning, uh, but I wish all the fathers a happy Father's Day as well. This morning, we are going to continue in our Matthew series um, in Matthew 11. We're going to look at the last 10 verses, so verses 20 to 30. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 11, 20 to 30, and then once you're ready, then please stand as we read God's Word. And these are the sufficient and perfect and inerrant words of the living God. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And may God bless the reading of his word. I'm curious if anyone here has ever heard the complaint that Christianity is just a crutch for weak-minded people. Who has heard an equal but opposite complaint that Christianity is just a bunch of doctrinaire nitpicking and really has nothing practical to offer the common man? Right? We're just concerned about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and other weird stuff that doesn't really matter, but it has no practical value. Maybe you've even heard this one. I don't trust Christianity because look at all these denominations. There's Christians that disagree about baptism and they disagree about church government and they disagree about different things. Therefore, Christianity is not dependable. And then they'll hear a group of Christians recite the Apostles' Creed together and say, oh, so it's groupthink. <laughs> okay, I see how you, so this is like a cult. You guys all have to think the exact same way. And you start to notice that there's no pleasing certain critics of Christianity. The goalposts keep moving. And whenever you answer it, there's a new set of objections that come up. Some people will never be pleased because their objection isn't according to any fixed standards. They just refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. And so they'll keep coming with inconsistent complaint after inconsistent complaint. And we know that Christians are still struggling with sin. We know that. And so there are legitimate criticisms that can be made of any particular Christian or of any particular Christian group. This is true. But when we start to examine the heart behind some of the criticisms, we'll realize that it is, in fact, inconsistent. It's inconsistent. There's not a fixed standard that these people are uh, interested in upholding. Rather, they just want to find a reason to hide from Jesus Christ. 
you'll realize that there's no winning with some people. And this is exactly where Chris left us off last week in Matthew eleven sixteen through 19, where Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So keep in mind, this generation that Jesus is looking at have experienced firsthand, in person, the two greatest preachers in the history of the world, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And they complain, John the Baptist was too austere. He was too rough. He was a rough man. We didn't like him very much. He must have had a demon. And then Jesus is outgoing, and his behavior, while perfectly holy, associates him with scandalous people, and they associate scandal then with Jesus. John came with the law, and the people complained. Jesus comes with the gospel, and people complain. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang the dirge for you, and you didn't mourn. We played the funeral song, and you guys didn't weep. And then I played the wedding song, and you refused to celebrate. What is wrong with you people? What is wrong with you? You never, ever know what time it is. You refuse to die, and you refuse to live. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? There's no pleasing you. And in today's passage, we're going to continue to see the same pattern. The law is designed to kill, and the gospel is designed to make alive. Jesus is not going to go down some feel-good moralistic trail. Rather, he is going to give straight law and straight gospel, not some kind of bland law and gospel mix that ends up being nothing. Christian Smith a professor at Notre Dame University talks about evangelical preaching today, and he says it's really not Christian in, a lot, in far too many cases in any sense. What he calls it is therapeutic, moralistic deism. It's therapeutic, okay? There's no, there's no savior for dead sinners. There's therapy for broken people. See the difference? You address a different problem, you're going to have a different solution. It's moralistic. There's just platitudes that sound nice, but it's not the full weight of God's law telling us how we ought to live. And it's deism. There's not a personal God. There's just life principles. God kind of set the the watch of history and now it's just unwinding according to natural cause and effect relationship. And so there's not really a personal God. There's just some kind of higher power. Jesus is the exact opposite of that. There is no moralistic, therapeutic deism in Jesus Christ whatsoever. Jesus is going to give full-octane law and full-octane gospel, and he will not confuse the two. God's law must kill so that the gospel must make alive. That's why we do covenant renewal worship. That's why we read law and gospel every Sunday to remind us of the place of God's law, the place of God's judgment, and the place of his marvelous, amazing grace. God's law has already shown us that we are dead spiritually by birth. And repentance and faith come to life when we acknowledge our deadness, when we acknowledge our condition. And so the closing verses of chapter 11 are going to show us that when Christ shows us his various attributes, we're going to see that they're not opposed to one another, but that they complement each other perfectly. They fit. Jesus is not schizophrenic. Each attribute of God helps us to understand the other attributes of God better. 
And so in today's passage, in verse 20 through 22, Jesus says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And so Jesus starts to tear into Chorazin and Bethsaida. And these towns, together with Jesus' home base, which is in Capernaum, formed a kind of triangle. This was the, the original Bible belt, I guess you could say, in which Jesus' ministry and his preaching focused. And so this is the area of Christ's evangelistic ministry. And yet, spiritually, this area has remained largely unreached. Verse 20 says that they did not repent. And Jesus goes so far as to tell the Jewish people here that they are more hardened than the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. And what's the biblical significance of those cities? They are Phoenician cities in that region. And in 1 Kings 16, we read about the most notoriously evil king in Israel, King Ahab. And he marries a notoriously evil woman by the name of Jezebel. And in so doing, he has made an alliance with Sidon. And this led to the the prevalence and the spread of idolatry and Baal worship in Israel. Okay, so this compromise, this intermarriage between a wicked king and a wicked pagan woman means there's reverse evangelism into Israel. And Isaiah and Ezekiel, the prophets, both condemned these regions because of their idolatry. Tyre and Sidon are idolatrous cities. They serve the wrong gods. And if there's one thing that is perfectly clear in Scripture, it is that God detests from the pit of his stomach idolatry and false worship. And the reason for this is because we become like we worship. And that is actually true for everybody, Christian or not. Just think about it for a minute. You become like what you worship. If you worship a life of ease, a life of comfort, you're going to become like what you worship. If you worship the living God, you are going to grow more and more and more in conformity with him. And that's why it's important that we gather as God's people to worship. Okay? Worship is a battering ram that we all get behind and we're swinging this battering ram together and we are growing in Christ-likeness as we worship the one who we need to be like. This is why idolatry is so destructive. This is why false worship and false, uh, even false conceptions that we may have of the real God are so destructive. Because they lead us astray, and our lifestyle will dictate. Your lifestyle will tell you what kind of a God you serve. Your theology will come out of your fingertips. This is inevitable. So if you're ever curious, what do I really believe in my heart of heart? Just watch yourself live for a week, and you'll find out what you believe. You'll find out what your theology is as you watch your actions. Yet, despite the idolatry in Tyre and Sidon, despite their false worship and their wicked deeds... Jesus says that these cities, these wicked, idolatrous cities, are going to have it easier on the day of judgment than Jesus' own backyard towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says that if they had seen the ministry of Christ, these Phoenician idolaters would have been quicker to repent than the Jewish people in Jesus' own backyard who are rejecting their Messiah. Verse 23 and 24 He goes on and says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. 
But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That is a heavy, heavy sentence. Capernaum is the town out of which Jesus operated. It's his home base for most of his ministry. And yet we see here that just being in close proximity to Christ is not going to save these people. Jesus tells them that they will be brought down to Hades and that Sodom will find judgment more bearable than Capernaum. And I don't think this is a main point here, but it's worth examining. Language like this does indeed indicate that there are degrees of punishment even in hell. Chris mentioned last week how Christ's ministry goes through the various shifts in the book of Matthew. And the tension between Christ and the religious leaders continues to build. It's like gases filling a room, just waiting for someone to light a match for this to all go off. And that does, in fact, happen. We're approaching that time as we work through this gospel. And as this happens, Christ's plain and straightforward teaching starts to shift to parables. He starts to hide his teaching for those who have spiritual eyes and those who don't. And we're not there yet, but the parables themselves should not be seen simply or just merely as moral lessons put in story form. They are that, but they're also more. There are moral lessons in the parables, but they are also prophetic announcements about what Christ is about to do. They are designed to provoke, and in fact, they do provoke. And we're going to hear, as we go through this gospel, we're going to hear about day workers who come late and get the same treatment as the early workers. We're going to hear about tenants in a vineyard who keep rejecting messengers from the landowner. And eventually, they're going to kill the last messenger from the vineyard owner. And then the landowner is going to put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season, Matthew 21, 41. Jesus is provoking. And he paints a similar picture in Luke 12, 47, 48. He says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will, reserve, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so there is an expectation that those who are in a position to know more, are accountable for more. And thus they are more responsible for their disobedience. People who got to witness Jesus ministering in this little triangle of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum clearly are accountable because they've seen Jesus with their eyes. They've seen his ministry. They've been around him. Of course they are accountable in a way that these ancient cities that did not know Jesus were not. And in chapter 10, Jesus compared the towns of Israel to Sodom once before. This is becoming a theme of comparing unbelief to Sodom if they rejected the preaching of the apostles. And we should not miss what kind of a statement this is. We'll recall that Sodom is the city that is destroyed by God for its sexual perversion. But then we read other portions of scripture, like in Ezekiel, that says that the sin of Sodom was her pride and her greed. But then we read in Genesis and Jude that it seems to be the sin of homosexuality. So what is it? Remember, the men of this town were banging down a door trying to gang rape messengers from God. Sodomite rape. And I would suggest this isn't contrary testimony when Jesus is referencing Sodom. What's going on here? It's following the logic of Romans 1. The self-sufficiency that Ezekiel describes, the pride and the greed, descends into arrogance. And arrogance descends into self-indulgence and vanity. 
And self-indulgence and vanity descend into falling in love with a mirror. And that is, in fact, what homosexuality is. This is the last rung down on a descent of pride and self-love. So Ezekiel, Moses, Jude, and now Jesus all agree that pride and homosexual lust are two sides of the same coin. And so whether these people know it or not, we are celebrating Canada's high religious feast month this month in June. And you see, knowingly or not, these people are correct in correlating pride with sexual perversion. They're getting it right. Whether they know it or not, I don't know. But it is a correct connection. It's a connection that the Bible itself makes. And so Jesus doesn't say, notice closely, Jesus doesn't say that the moral state of affairs in Chorazin or Bethsaida or Capernaum ever get as bad as they were in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. But he does say this. Jesus is telling his hometown that by rejecting the gospel message, by not repenting, they are going to face a wrath of God that is far worse than these towns that are known for their idolatry and their false worship. And so the takeaway is this. A lukewarm attitude towards Jesus Christ is a worse crime than trying to gang rape and sodomize an angel. Do you feel the weight of that? Lukewarmness is worse. Lukewarmness is worse than bad behavior. To treat Jesus like he essentially doesn't matter is the worst thing you can do. If you're going to go down a life of sin, then do it. Go all the way. But none of this nonsense that you can have at all. You cannot. You will bend the knee to Christ or you will be a slave to sin. To be lukewarm about Christ makes no sense. Okay? Don't pretend. Don't play games. Bend the knee or don't. But let's be honest. Jesus is forcing his audience to be honest. There is no such thing as indifference or lukewarmness when it comes to Jesus. And all along in this gospel, Jesus has been making clear that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. And so to be indifferent or complacent about this puts one in the worst possible spot. After all, every and any sin can be forgiven. Anger, lust, murder, lying, sexual immorality, including homosexual immorality, drunkenness, abortion. God is happy to forgive all of it if we repent. The one thing that is not forgiven is impenitence, a refusal to bend the knee. That cuts you off from the forgiveness for all the other sins. And this sin is especially bad if you have the ability to know better. The Jewish people had spent their whole lives anticipating the Messiah, and now he's here. He's right in front of them. And they either oppose him, or they just flat out couldn't be bothered one way or the other. And when we think about this in our own time, we're going to honor parenthood, fatherhood, children this morning. But I want the kids to think about this. Christian kids in Christian homes have an incredible blessing. You have been blessed with church attendance. You've been blessed with family worship. You've been blessed with Bible knowledge. And you've been blessed with prayer. To walk away from that is to put yourself in a worse spot than if you had never heard the name of Jesus. Take these blessings seriously, kids. Don't turn them into a curse. Take it serious. Your parents are blessing you. Turn that blessing into a bigger blessing. Commenting on these passages, Matthew Henry writes, We have here Capernaum's doom. You which are exalted to heaven shall be brought down to hell. Those who enjoy the gospel in power and purity are thereby exalted to heaven. They are lifted up toward heaven. 
But if they still hang on to the earth, they may thank themselves that they are not lifted up into heaven. Our external privileges will be so far from saving us that if our hearts and lives don't bend to them, they will make their reckoning far worse. The higher the peak is, the more fatal the fall from it. We have it here put in comparison with the doom of Sodom. Christ tells us here that Capernaum's signs would have saved Sodom. If these miracles had been done among the Sodomites, as bad as they were, they would have repented. And their city would have remained to this day as a statue to God's mercy. Through true repentance in Christ, even the greatest sin shall be pardoned and the greatest destruction prevented. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for that city who rejects Christ. So Christ is clearly unsettling his crowd. And this is exactly what he wants to do. It's been said, and I agree with this, that true gospel preaching, hot gospel preaching, aims to afflict the comfortable and then to comfort the afflicted. That is the minister's job. That is what Jesus does. That is what the apostles do. He has unsettled and afflicted the insiders, the complacent, the lazy, the indifferent, the proud, the people who should know better, but frankly can't be bothered. And frequently in this biblical pattern of law and gospel preaching, those people... And this is the irony. Those people who should be scared typically are not. Okay? It's the people who have fled from the wrath of God who are typically gripped by God's warnings. There is a certain irony in this. The people who have no need to be scared are quite sober when they hear this. And the people who frankly need to be scared couldn't be bothered. There is an irony in this. And this is why law and gospel preaching, this apostolic pattern is so important. We need to afflict the comfortable. They need to hear it. They need to be brought low so that they can come to Jesus. And Jesus does, in fact, shift gears. He has afflicted the comfortable, and now he is going to comfort the afflicted as this chapter shifts gears. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is praying to the Father, and in his prayer, he demonstrates again that just because he has different attributes doesn't mean that there's any contradiction or confusion. Jesus thanks the Father for keeping the wise in confusion and giving light to the little children. We discussed some of this in Sunday school this morning. But it's often difficult for us to even accept God's sovereignty and salvation. But notice here, Jesus doesn't just accept it. He makes a public prayer thanking God for it. Okay, He is far from embarrassed. He is thanking God for this. Staying hidden... And revealing himself is the work of God. And not everyone does, well, nobody knows the Father by default. In fact, absolutely nobody could know the Father unless the Son reveals him to them. And this is a hard saying. But passages like this are always an opportunity to help retrain our minds. And think, what is the default setting of the human heart? If we are basically good, and we're we're all on our pilgrimage to heaven, and we're all basically good people, and that's the message we hear about all the time. We're basically good. Just make some mistakes here and there, and and Jesus, the life coach, is going to kind of help us stay on track. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the kind of stuff we want to stay away from. 
But think, if we're basically good and then God goes out of his way to hide himself from us, we could charge God with an injustice. There would be some weight to that complaint. But what if the Bible teaches that we're not good? What if the Bible teaches that we're rebels who stray from the beginning, from our mother's womb? What if the default setting on the human heart is to be at war against God and to live for ourselves? There is no injustice then if God remains hidden. This is the default setting. We, we want God to be hidden. We don't want to see him. So if he leaves us in that state, no injustice has been done. But if he gives sight to blind people like that, that is a miracle. God's sovereignty and salvation is only prickly if we assume that we deserve mercy. But if mercy is deserved, is it still mercy? It is not. If you think grace is deserved, you're not thinking about grace. You're thinking about merit. Grace, by its very definition, must be free. It must be amazing. It must be unearned. It must be a gift from God. Grace must be free. It must be a gift. It must be amazing. And the graciousness of grace is here demonstrated by the fact that the people we would expect to get it, the wise and the understanding, can't see it even though it's right in front of their eyes. The scribes and the Pharisees are looking Jesus right in the eyes and they do not see the Messiah. But the simple do. The little children do. And today too, how many great theologians and Bible scholars miss it? How much Bible scholarship is actually unbelieving scholarship? They treat the Bible like they would treat a work of Shakespeare or something. It's just a historical artifact that's interesting to understand the West and so forth, but they don't see it as the living, inerrant word of God. They treat scripture like they treat other literature and they treat Christ the same way they would treat the Dalai Lama or any other wise oracle. But then God shows himself to small children, to handicapped people, to the uneducated, to farmers, fishermen, construction workers, guys with grease on their hands, moms who stay at home with their babies. This is not earned. This is grace. And God shows it. He is gentle and lowly. And he is not above these people. Yes, he also does show himself to the rich and the educated. And we have plenty of examples of that. Job, Abram, Saul of Tarsus. But this is owing to God's kindness and not to our mercy or not to our merit, I should say. And then Jesus closes here, verses 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ brings this dialogue for a landing in the most pastoral place possible. He has afflicted the comfortable, and now he is comforting the afflicted. He is making an open invitation for anyone who is hearing him. And this shows that there is no contradiction whatsoever between God's sovereignty and salvation and the free offer of the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And this morning, if you can hear his voice, then come. If you feel the weight of your sin, come. Come. Jesus is inviting you. Come. He is gentle and lowly. And he doesn't just want the powerful and the gifted and the educated. He wants them. But he also wants the rejects. He wants the misfits. 
He wants awkward people. He wants people who have struggles. And all of us, regardless of our family backgrounds, the way we look, our bank account, our level of education, our work, everyone is carrying around a load of guilt that needs to be reckoned with somehow. And the natural inclination of the human heart is not to open up our hand and receive God's grace. Our default setting is to try to earn it off, to try to work on a merit system, to try to work off our debt. And some of us don't get very far on that system. Some people start down that road and they burn out rather quickly. They see they can't pull it off. And that's discouraging because they burn out quickly. But there's something that's far worse than burning out quickly. And that's being able to pull it off for a season and fooling yourself. It's more destructive. Some of us, and I would include myself here, and I'm sure there's more, some of us can play this game of performance for longer than others. And we seem to be able to pull it off for a season. And if it looks like we're pulling it off, we become the Pharisees. We become the proud. And then, when we finally do fail, it's that much of a bigger failure. There's more despair because it looked, it looked for 15 years like I could do this and now I'm brought low. The despair is greater for those of us who can get further down this road. And so the problem with man-centered religion is that success goes to your head and failure goes to your heart. I'll say that again. The problem with man-centered religion is that success goes to our heads and failure goes to our hearts. And Jesus says, stop, come to me, get in the yoke with me. Whether you're the early burnout or whether you're the late proud failure like me, in both cases, whoever you are, you are carrying far more than you can handle. God will give you more than you can handle. I hate to pop that balloon, but God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Your life is more than you can handle. He promises to not leave us alone. To not leave us to our own devices. We need to find peace. We need to find rest. And that is exactly what Christ is offering here. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is the perfect mediator. He has kept the law for us. He has died the death that we deserve to die. And he took the blow of God's wrath that was aimed rightly towards everyone in this room. He has done this for us. And so when he invites us to take his yoke on us, it really is easy. This is a picture from agriculture. The Bible has lots of those. If you've ever worked around horses, you'll sometimes see if you've got a team of horses pulling, you'll see one of them has the chain kind of tight behind them and the other one's knowing exactly how to walk at a pace that the chain is always slack behind it. It's doing no work. They're both walking at the same speed, but one of them figures out, well, that one will do all the work. And I think that's actually a picture for what getting in the yoke with Christ does. He's the one pulling the weight. He's the one doing the work. Yes, you're there beside him. Yes, you're united to Christ. Let him do the work. His yoke is easy. Come to him. Come for rest. You don't have to do this on your own. And when we come to Christ, we are united to him in such a way that he does cover us. He works for us. He works in and through us. And so when we are in the witness stand in God's courtroom, when God demands perfection and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer must 
not have anything to do with you. It must be pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I am covered in his righteousness. And so when the saints stand in God's courtroom, God does not look over and he does not see Matt Plett or anyone else in this room. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees his son covering perfectly the sinner. And that is why he is pleased to say not only not guilty, but innocent, perfect, holy, righteous. Come in, enjoy me forever because you are perfect. You are perfect, not because of you, but because of Christ covering on you. You have been covered with Christ's righteousness if you are in him. And so our load truly does become easy. There is rest for your soul. And the pattern should be getting clearer and clearer as we work through this gospel. As we work through our service order every week, where we ought to be reminded that the law kills and the gospel makes alive and assures us of our pardon before God. And so just in these 11 verses, we can see that holy anger and justice and wrath that Christ has as his own people couldn't be bothered to take him seriously. And then he moves on to explain why those who should get it don't get it. But those who we'd expect not to get it do. He opens the door wide to all those who want to find rest for their souls. And this is why when we pray for our loved ones here or in private, when we're praying for those who are straying or lost, we pray that they wouldn't find peace. And that's a good prayer. But that's not the ultimate goal. The reason we pray that they won't have peace now is so that they will find lasting peace. Make sin unenjoyable, please, Lord. Please make sin unsatisfying. Keep them restless. Keep them angry. Keep them unhappy. Keep them frustrated, please, Lord. Why? Not because we want them there, but because we want them to know peace. And they're not going to get there unless they see what a dead-end cul-de-sac, a life wasted on yourself, really is. D.A. Carson comments on this lukewarmness. No one is more miserable than the Christian for who at time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, and he does not love Christ enough to truly relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is wicked, but obedience still seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, but the memory of past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing properly with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied. The joy Jesus promises is therefore not merely some cheap glow that depends on outward circumstances. It is the profound delight of the godly person who delights in the law of the Lord. The sublime gladness of wholehearted obedience. Every Christian who has traveled any distance on his pilgrimage knows this is true. His deepest joy springs from periods in his life where he obeys Christ with unreserved commitment. So I'm going to ask, where are you this morning? Are you restless? Are you tired? Are you running from yourself? You're running from your parents? You're running from your kids? You're running from your grandparents' memory? Do you find Christ so uninteresting that you are in the dreadful position of being lukewarm? Is Christ that uninteresting to you? 
Alistair Begg this last week preached about evangelism. And he talked about a guy who kept coming to these evangelism classes that he had. And he was interested but unconverted. And finally one day this guy had said, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian tonight. And he was instructed, I think wisely. I don't think this is a one-size-fits-all. But the preacher had the wherewithal to say, no, tonight's not the night. Don't do it. Because if you can go either way, you're not ready. (laughs) Wait until you can't not become a Christian. That's when we're going to have this conversation. Once you can't go either way, then we'll talk about your conversion. If you're on the fence, if you're lukewarm, if you can actually go either way, you are not ready. Your soul is not yet there. So wherever every one of us is this morning, be scared of being lukewarm. Be scared of thinking you can keep your life of sin and somehow meld Christianity into it. It will not work. Someone or something is going to win. So take Jesus' warnings seriously. If you are hearing my voice, you are more accountable after today than you were this morning. You have heard the words of Jesus. You are accountable for what you have heard. Take it seriously. Christ has warned you through his word. And take his invitation for peace just as seriously. Please find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that in your anger and in your wrath you warn us. You caution us. You tell us the truth. But then you do not leave us there. But you come to comfort us. You give us shelter. You give us peace from the wrath to come. You are the fortress that we can run into. Lord, and I pray for everyone here this morning, man, woman, child. Lord, I pray that they would know this peace. Lord, and if they are not yet there, then please, Lord, make their life uncomfortable. Frustrate them. Make them angry. Make them confused. Make them see the dead-end folly of sin, Lord, and bring them to yourself that they can enjoy the sweetness of taking the load of shame and guilt off that their reputation doesn't have to follow them around, Lord, because when you adopt us, you give us a new name. You give us the name of Christian. We belong to you. We are covered in your righteousness. So help us to get rid of the guilt and the shame of our sin, that we would be free, that we would be alive in you. Lord, send your spirit this week. Keep nipping at our heels. Lord, and for those who are there, I pray that that we would not be scared by these warning passages, but that we would rather relish in the sweetness and in the comfort that we have been covered. Our sins are forgiven. Our shame is far away, as far as the east is from the west, and that we would have peace, that we would live a life of calm, even while the world around us storms and rages. Lord, we are safe. We are protected as your yoke partner. Thank you for your kindness to us. Guide us, lead us. I pray this all in the strong name.